Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today, we're going to take on this notion of being true to ourselves in a big way. For most, this takes courage, a lot of it. My friend and guest today is none other than the founder of Courageous, a change consultancy that develops courage brands and helps companies actually actually operationalize courage, which we'll learn about. He is a speaker, author, authority on being courageous and affecting change inside organizations to make it possible. Having been featured in Entrepreneur, Fast Company, and Forbes, he's spoken all over the country. He hosts the Courageous Podcast, where he talks with thought leaders around the globe in business, sports, and entertainment to undercover what it, to uncover what it means to be courageous. His passion is inspiring more people to choose courage. We're in for a big treat today. I am thrilled to welcome the fearless founder of Courageous, Ryan Berman. Ryan, epic to host you on the show. I don't know I'm the fearless founder. I have a bit on fearless. Is this where we're going to start on a bit on fearless? <laughs> well, you don't have to be fearless. A fearless founder, there's an alliteration, I thought. And you seem fearless to me, so you fake fearless founder well. <laughs> oh, it's not It's not a fake. It, I, I'm more. I, I'm not a fan of fearless, I, and this is very me, and you know me. So I'm more in the fear more than fearless, and I wish more people would sort of seek out their fears and hunt them down and then shrink them down. But that's a whole nother... Maybe that's a terrible hook to start. I probably lost half the, your listeners just by starting there. But that that's kind of what I am is like I'm kind of a, a fear fighter now. And I love helping people sort of go after their fears and shrink them down and go from there. I love fear more. I love fear more. That is my word for the day. Um, okay, so we're going to unpack that and more. I have to say to listeners, when I first met you, I'm pretty intuitive, but the whole notion of real, of being super real is what I, I still love most about you. And um, to guide leaders and organizations to find courage themselves has to start within you. So my friend, um, I'm really grateful for you telling your unvarnished story that uh, has led to where you are today. And um, I appreciate if you don't mind going back to the childhood days and just uh, give us a sense of what it was like growing up as you. All right. So I'm on the, I'm on the couch, right? This is therapy. Is that what this is? <laughs> no, there's no therapy. <laughs> All right. So look, I, I got really lucky. You know, I, I, I kind of had, I feel like I had a life cheat code at the beginning. I, I mean, I had my stuff too, and we can get into it for sure. But you know, I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. I was the second of two. I had a brother who is four and a half years older, parents still together. I feel like I came out, like I said, like I started on level five because I just got lucky. Like my parents just having that that unit 
um, and growing up in an area where it was like doctors, lawyers, and CIA. Like that's that's who, who <laughs> where the neighbors were. Um, so I had this really big safe bubble where I never felt threatened. I could just play and be outside and be a kid. And um, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that like our jobs pick us, not the other way around. And when you're the second of two and your brother's four and a half years older and, you know, I'm like, oh, oh, my brother just got yelled at by my parents for going out, sneaking out that window. Well, I'm not going to do that. Right. And, you know, I describe myself as a compensated observationalist and my job is just to sort of observe the world and take in the insight. Sometimes it's hearing what's not said. And so that's when you have an older brother, that's just, you're just sort of thrown into that and you watch what he does. Did that work for him? Yes. We'll do that. Did it not work for him? Okay. Dad's pretty mad. Don't do that. And um, my childhood started out that way. Now where, where my brother and I had a divide, he was just a little too old to really provide me with any coverage. Like he's being four and a half years older. Um, he was by far like the, science fiction, book reading, Lego building, uh, improv, musical improv theater brother. And I, I wanted to compete. Like you find me a sport. Um, I will bike two miles. If I even have like a little bit of an iota that there's going to be a game. And, you know, back then there was no internet there was no texting i didn't have a cell phone you just kind of kept your fingers crossed and you you just kind of biked all the parks and you hoped you saw a group of kids and i didn't i didn't need to know them i was i would find a way to get into that game and i think that that says a lot about how this happened um i've always been about play and having fun i love to compete um good sport, I think, you know, and, but I, I, like I said, I, I just had a smile on my face throughout my childhood, which is just a data point to like, it's like a testament to my parents and, and the life that they were able to provide for me as a kid, that little bubble of safety so I can go have fun and play and be curious. Now, like I said, I had my stuff. Here are my two big things. This is the beginning, real, the, really the beginning of the therapy. One, the way my parents, it wasn't intentional. And if my mom, who's you know still alive, hears this episode, Molly, I can already hear her go, oh, here he goes again. So here's my here he goes again. Um, the way my parents sort of positioned my brother and I unintentionally is that my brother was the smart one. Right. He was the fast track, smart one, private school. And I was branded as good with people. And they're like, oh, no, you're good with people. That's a that's a skill. And, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I'm the stupid one. I'm the dumb one. Oh, no, I'm, I'm the one. He's the smart one. He's the fast track. And I'm the other one. And, you know, when you're a kid, you you feel that, but you can't process that. And the second component was because we lived in such a prominent part of the country, there was an unspoken rule in Potomac, Maryland, that at least I felt. And that was do better than the last generation, do better than the last generation. And, and, um, you know, we grew up in a three car garage house. My father 
really was a self-made man. He did whatever he had to do. He put himself, for the most part, through law school to give us a life that he never had. He, he kind of grew up on the other side of the tracks um, outside of Silver Spring, Maryland, and kind of figured it out, figured it out away. And then all of a sudden we show up and we're in like this, you know, three-car garage house. And so those were the two things that I was fighting is one, um, my brother's smart when I'm good with people. And then two, well, you're supposed to do better than the last generation. And in my mind, I'm like, well, great. I'm the, I'm the stupid one. And how am I supposed to beat this? How am I supposed to top this? And I'd say it was like a 10 year conversation with myself about, well, I'm, I guess I'm going to have to outwork you. I'm just going to have to outwork you because I'm not smart. And that, you know, I even to this day, I still say, just chop wood. I'm just going to chop wood. And in sports and whatever it was at school, I would just chop wood and I would, I would, you know, my goal was to always assume that the bar was lower for me and I would surprise and delight you and you wouldn't see it coming. Now, you know, again, 20, 20 some years after thinking that, my parents are kind of right. I'm good with people. It's a good skill to have, no doubt. And I'm grateful for it because I had to build that great muscle. Um, but I go back to that first sort of observationalist uh, mentality. And even on my, you know, Return on Courage, my book, you know, it kind of sums up everything. It was a slow cook process. It took a thousand days of me knocking on courageous doors. I describe it as uh, interviewing the brave, the bullish, and the brainiac. And uh, it, it was like a curious documentary where I got to sit with all these smart people. Notice even now I'm like, I don't say I'm smart. I got to sit with all these smart people and learn from them and um, extract knowledge from them. And then off of that, I built you know my framework for teaching companies how to be more courageous, but I'm, I'm really leaping ahead now. But it's funny, even now, it's like if it wasn't good with people, I wouldn't have been able to have a chance to even connect with these people. They wouldn't have let me into their lives. To be to be honest, I still don't totally fully get it because they weren't clients. I wasn't paying them. And yet people at Harvard and Method and Apple and Domino's and Amazon, they, I guess they just resonated with the concept of courage and they invited me into their lives and let me have lunch with them. And it's just been an awesome, you know, experiment. And that's all it really is, is an experiment. And I, like I said, I now tip my cap to my parents. They weren't trying to like throw me down the spiral. I'm, I really am uh, pretty darn, you know, good in relationships and I enjoy the connections, but at the time it's, you know, it's what I used to drive me forward. Oh, so much there and you know this notion of a relationship because that is at the core of all this say it's scopely stuff let's just be clear being a good relationship with ourselves first to then be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes and as a as a group as a whole like who are we together um, and what serves the whole and it it's so fundamental so many people would nod their heads oh yeah yeah oh yeah the relationships is most important but ryan so many people don't actually execute on that, right? It, it, there's a lot of transactional um, nature that it just gets um, ingrained in folks. Uh, I think corporate America, when I talk to folks, that is a, 
a lot of the experience isn't about, oh, being authentic and being real. Um, one of the reasons I love having you on the show, but it's more about, you know, how, how useful are you? How can you produce the numbers? You know? So as you, you know, with this really a dream kind of a setup, when you got to school, did you have any big aha? Like, oh, wow, I grew up in a bubble. I'm just curious when that burst and then how you, how you got yourself onto the, the work scene. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's sort of waves on this one, right? Like they were, they, they came in, in, in different, the waves came at different time. So I'd say the first thing was me fighting this fake belief that I wasn't smart. And what I realized is when I'm in a class with 45 people, 40 people as a dreamer, guess what? I'm not going to do well in that environment. Um, but I, I basically went to school in upstate New York, Ithaca College, television radio major. And the minute that I was able to get my hands on equipment, game over. And I was like, oh my gosh. This isn't like this is this is not school. This is fun. This is playing. Um, I've always loved storytelling and story making, and Ithaca pretty much gave me the opportunity to learn how to tell a good story. Whether it was a, the vessels were different. So one class you're in script writing, another class you're a director, your next you're doing news. It was all hands on and somebody like me that was like immense confidence it just it just i just i mean i almost realized for the first time like i don't think i called it this at the time molly but it was like we have these limiting beliefs and until you find ways to short circuit them you're gonna just get stuck and you know it's if you only know one way it's that's it you're kind of you're gonna run into a dead end or you're gonna you're gonna be a robot and think that's the only way to do it and so when you go from what i believe to be oh, there's only one way to learn. I'm just not a good learner in a classroom to hands-on learning. I mean, I was a pretty much near a straight-A student at Ithaca. And and I realized that college became an exercise in time management where I could fit in everything that I love. So whether it was my classes or sports or, you know, dating or going out or being in a fraternity, um, I, I really, it was almost like the first strategy course, although it wasn't called strategy. So like that really gave me a lot of confidence. Um, I came out of school with a advertising portfolio. To be honest, I had done an internship in Los Angeles um, after my sophomore year through Ithaca and I loved the program. Uh, I worked on the Carsey Warner lots, so like uh, Sybil Shepard, Gary Shandling, Seinfeld was shot there. I worked for Polly Platt, who was like big times uh, movie, like like looking for the next great movie, reading scripts. I actually thought I was moving to California, and it just so happened that one of my roommates' father came and took us to dinner one night at Ithaca my junior year, and was like, "Do you know what I do for a living?" You got the, like the total New Yorker, right? Do you know what I do for a living? I'm like, I, and I didn't have a clue i'm like do you know what i do for a living you know make sure your make sure your son doesn't fail out of school and he thought it was funny and 
I come to learn that he run ran a 700 person creative agency in New York City, and he pretty much offered me an internship on the spot. And uh, I knew right then that I was going to take on the next adventure and go to New York City. And there, I was one of 22 interns. I called it Survivor Island, and was like, I will live at this company. I will outwork you, right? If that's what it takes to get this job. And I believe I was the only one, only intern offered a job afterwards. Now, a lot of the other interns were juniors and going back to school, but I was like, whatever it takes, I will get this job. I will like be here. I'm going to figure it out. And, um, and that was it. That was like the beginning of my life learning from the, the crazy mad men folks on how to tell succinct stories in 30 seconds when television really mattered. And again, I came out of the portfolio and I remember my, uh, one of my bosses looking at my portfolio and, you know, all I wanted to do was be a creative. And I know for a long time, I, I was like, I'd rather entertain 2.2 million people than have 2.2 kids. Now I have 2.2 kids. I have like a nine pound dog who's my point two. So that's changed a little bit. But for a long time, I was like, what's it going to take to do this? I want to, and I figured, could I create advertising? Can I, can I be a creative? And he looked at my book and was like, well, we need a writer on our business development team. It's not exactly what you want. And again, that whole like flood of I'm not smart enough kind of first took over, followed by the next wave, which was, so, so wait a minute, I got a job I'm in. And it was like, I felt like I had gotten into the, the college I wanted to, and I just had to work my way into the major. And, and it took me four years to get into the creative department, including taking classes at night and again, hard work, right? I'm going to outwork you. And so that was just an awesome ride. New York City, I mean, you know you live there. I always describe New York City as like, it's like a treadmill on 10.0. You know, it's it's so hard to jump on there. If you're not careful, you could slip and bust your chin right open. But once you're on it, you, you can stay a while. And it's almost just as hard to get off of it. And I was very at peace being on it. And it was like, it was almost like the best thing that had ever happened to me that I didn't get my first choice and was forced to go into business development. And then we had won a piece of business. And Nobody asked me. They just moved me over. And the next thing you know, I'm in client services, right? Being good with people. And I worked my way up to an account supervisor running the subway business. Back when there was Subway Jared. I know we don't really talk about Jared that much anymore, but I was there for that campaign. And then the creative directors had actually asked me on a road show in Arizona, um, said the client wanted to see jingles. And would I be up? They had heard I was in night class for creative. And they're like, do you want to take a cut at it? I was like, I was like, looked at my boss. who was like, uh, hello. Like, please tell him, yes, this is what you've been asking for. And, you know, stayed up three nights in a row and ruthlessly working on my jingles and went in and, you know, this time I'm a button down kid with khakis and presented four or five different scripts. And they like kind of looked at each other, like, like I had 10 heads in a good way, which is good as from a creative perspective. And, um, I think of the four or five I presented, they decided to take four of them in and they're like, look, the client can't know you're writing on the business because you're running the business. So we're going to present it. And then I remember being in that room and the, basically the client at Subway ended up buying like the first four they picked were all mine. And it was just like, okay, a hugely validating moment for me. Super like gave me so much confidence. And um, I basically started becoming a creative writing on the business 
client could know for about a year because I was running the business. But um, you know, typical, typical agency life. But that became the beginning of the end of my first life. And I um, ended up moving into creative and three years of traveling around. But that first experience, man, it's like the best thing that ever happened. I, I call it a negative blessing that I didn't get my first choice because I was, I was forced to learn like a whole new skill and I was forced to learn business. And even today I'll say, you know, I don't see myself as a business guy and I don't see myself as a creative. I see myself as a creative business guy. And unfortunately, most business leaders can't fully grasp what creativity can do for the bottom line. And my experience is a lot of creatives don't know how to make money, hence the term starving artist. And so I try to thread that line even today. But that was back then, like I got the opportunity to learn business because I didn't get my first choice. And then it was this rocket ship of three years of just traveling around the US and Canada, shooting cool commercials, writing scripts, making stuff, having fun. Um, and then 9-11 hits and um, a good girlfriend of mine and her husband so one of my closest guy friends they choose to move to san diego after that they're like get me out of the city and um you know i live in san diego now back in 2004 um i went to visit them and i was shooting in la production in la and remember um thinking you know i'd always said i was going to go down and visit them and i haven't and the way production works sometimes we had a, like like a, a pre-production meeting on a Friday, which is like the very last check-in with your client before you start shooting. And then we had the weekend off. And so I rented a car, zipped down to San Diego, and was like, oh my goodness, people live here? <laughs> like, this is amazing. There's a beach, people are chill, people are cool, um, food's pretty good. And uh, I was like, yeah, I could see why you guys live here and 24 hours into my you know visit i'm like wait a minute people live here wait a minute how do i live here i want to live here <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she was a strategist and she had she had that new york experience and i was a creative and i had that new york experience and it didn't take long it may have been a month where we had started to talk about if i moved out here could i help her turn a photography studio into a branding firm and the universe steps in and I, I get let go from this New York company and it's like, okay, I'm going to spend the summer in New York, spend my last summer in New York city. I'm going to, I'm going to write it. I'm going to write a movie script a month because my goal was to get into movies and write scripts. Not sure if you knew that or not. I didn't. And um, and the plan was I was going to live rent-free at her house and help her. I could do the branding part on the side and write movies and go up to L.A. And off we go. And I remember getting here and helping her with a, with a prospect in New York. And the guy that she was working for was a photographer. had, like, no idea. Like, he was a photographer. He wasn't a business guy and wasn't really around much. And, and um and we would get this opportunity to pitch a healthcare tech business in New York and he wouldn't fly us out for it. And I'm like, well, we're certainly not going to win this if we don't go out to the meeting. So <laughs> I remembered taking my severance 
part of my severance and flying us out. And um, in the room, the CEO was like blown away by what we had presented. And we were kids. And it was like, look, if you nail this project, we'll, we'll send you the whole business. And so we did the project for the photographer, nailed the project, and then we both resigned. And that's how I started my first business. I landed in San Diego September 11th. You remember that date always, mm-hmm. but 2004. And by October 11th, 2004, I had started my first company, which I had no business doing, called Fish Tank. And no business plan, you know, no, oh, there's the white space opportunity. It was just, wait a minute, you're going to pay us how much to be your, to, to run your business? We can figure this out. We can figure this out. And that's that began my sort of leap into the entrepreneurial world. And from 04 to 12, grew the company, bought out um, my first partner, merged with the PR and social media firm. 12 to 17, we grew it to 80 people. And um, at the end of 17, that's when I started to really dance with the word courage. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. We could jump into that in a little bit if you want. Well, we will. It's amazing. I had no idea this was, this was the path. Um, and I can imagine other people thinking, because I'm thinking about this, you're like a storytelling expert and in 30 seconds telling it. So just share with listeners, what are some of the keys that you learn? Like, what are the lessons that you take? You know, because it, I could see this succinctness also as you meet people and build those relationships, right? You kind of can cut to the chase. Yeah, I think, I think it helps when you genuinely care about people. Like, it's not networking. By the way, can you hear, hear my dogs going bonkers now? <laughs> and there they go. That's one of the point two. Remember when he said the 2.2? Mm-hmm. Point Point two is going nuts. Um, I think, first of all, I really do like people because I like stories and I want to know people's stories and I'm genuinely interested and I gain energy from that. I want to know where you're from and how you like turned out the way you turned out, probably like you a little bit, right? Like I'm inherently curious. Um, and then you layer on this competitive madmen world where you're surrounded by elite storytellers. Some that like, are rooting for you, some that are trying to take your head off. I mean, this is all, you know, it was cutthroat business, right? And you got to do your part if you're going to stick around. I was just trying not to change who I was and just be genuine about like, I want to make people laugh. I want to have a good time. I want to put a smile on people's face. And I don't think that's really changed for me. It it can get incredibly annoying for my wife because she's like, you're like, you're an extrovert and you're always positive. That is so annoying. (laughs) And she's like, to her and uh she's more of the the minute we go out she needs she needs some time when she comes back she needs to like have the battery charge and my battery gets charged by going out and being being with people and being with people is just an opportunity to learn someone's story and uh and so as a storyteller there's joy there right there's true joy there the the lesson i think is like just to continue to do what you love and and design a life where you follow that path. And even when I didn't know it was courage for me, it was like intuition and belief. And you know, honestly, Molly, when I moved to when I moved to California, 
I, I like, you know, typical me too. I'm like, I called it the yo-yo effect. I'm like a master. I guess I do a lot of branding, right? So the yo-yo effect. If I don't like California, I can always yo-yo back. I can yo-yo back to New York City. It's that simple, right? And everything is just an experiment. Everything is an opportunity to like, you know, learn and grow. And that's, that is where my joy comes from. I, I have a hard time personally. It's like once I've read that chapter, I don't need to go back and read it again. I want to go to a next chapter and then the next chapter. And what I learned about great storytelling is stories always point forward. It's always about going forward. And, and so, so that's kind of how I'm striving to live my life. It's a total adventure. It's an experiment. It doesn't sit well with my parents who are 3,000 miles away. They don't love it that their grandkids are 3,000 miles away. But it works for me, and thank goodness for technology now because we can at least FaceTime with them, and they can read a book to their grandkids. And, and you know, a few times a year I get back to see them or they'll come out to visit me. But I think if you ask them, like if you called them into the show, I think they would be, they would be proud of what I've achieved. And, um, and again, like I said, they gave me everything I needed to be independent and to stay curious and to go for it. Oh my gosh. I love it. The, the, you know, when you're coming through and this madman to the point of cutthroat competitive must win potentially at all costs. So moments where you, do you remember where there was an option to not be you? Was it just something where it was not hard for you? I mean, I was a very impressionable young person and, you know, it definitely um, would be more susceptible to following the trend. Did you just hold your ground? Did you flirt with, did you go through a point where you're kind of not the Ryan you wanted to be? Hmm. Well, I think, I think that up till high school through high school, me was totally me. And it like, and that me, that me didn't really care about being cool. You know, I wanted to be friends with everybody, but I was like, I wanted to play sports. Like I had a Mormon girlfriend in high school and some of my buddies were like, I don't get it you know, because their mind was around other things. And I'm like, she's funny. She makes me laugh. She's cool. And, uh, and then when I went to college, that I think that layered on a different me, like it was a different strategy. And I was going to figure out how to be like cool in college and, and understand those universes. I think it was a different me in college than it was, than I was, I was a more pure me in high school. And then when you go to school in New York, you, you know, you do got to get like some sharp elbows a little bit. And I learned that from New York. I learned that from playing basketball in in upstate New York. Um, and I think it gave me just enough. I mean, I, you know, I, I should probably also mention, like I could probably list like on one hand how I happened and, I should go back and say at the age of eight, my brother had gone to summer camp for a month in North Carolina. And I'm like, that looks amazing. I want, how, I want to go. I want to go when I'm old enough. And so when I was eight, I, my parents put me on a plane for a month to North Carolina and it was the best. I mean, I like, that was it. And I got to tell you, when you grow up in the, in outside of DC to, to people from North Carolina, you're a Yankee, you're a Yankee. And I learned for the first time at eight that the South was different than the North and how the cultural differences 
it was real. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that. I love how people down there are different, even at eight. So I learned independence and I learned that depending on where you grow up, people are different. And by the way, from the age of eight to 15, I went to that summer camp. I mean, and it was a YMCA camp. It was a character counts camp. Um, I just learned, you know, I just learned character and how to be a good leader, in my opinion, even though I didn't, might not have called it back, called it that back then. And then you go to New York, right? And you learn, you learn social smart. You learn a little bit of street smart when you go to New York City. You go to LA, it's a completely different game. And so, you know, by the time I was like 21, I'd seen four or five different environments. And you start to become a mosaic. You take a little bit of this and a dash from that. You're making your your little cocktail of, of how you're going to be when you grow up. And I, again, because I love to compete, New York City really, really worked well for me. Um, so did I lose myself? I, I think you could throw me into any situation because I'd seen many and I wouldn't lose myself. I could quickly find common ground with you depending on what you liked. And I don't think it was devious. I just think I genuinely was like, oh, we can find something. We can find something in common. It's like the Kevin Bacon game, right? <laughs> Six degrees to find something in common. And um, and then when I moved to California to San Diego, again, it was like the next adventure and finding other transplants and finding other people and why do they choose to move. That's always been just who I am and and what I'm about. And even now, you know, it's a lot of the work I do on the on the like the executive coaching side. I mean, you know this. It is it is so incredibly lonely lonely for many leaders. And in some ways I yeah, I mean I have a framework and a process, but like they need they need a good friend. They need someone who can listen to them. They need someone who can help them hear what's not being said. Um, they need the right words. You know, in some ways, because I have the advertising background, I'm pretty good at succinctly getting to a clarity point. And that becomes sort of like the point that they can use to build belief in their organization. So all of these skills that I learned along the way, they, they absolutely play they absolutely helped me do what I do. And it just, it just puts a smile on my face. I, I'm really grateful for the adventure I've been, I've been allowed to go on in this lifetime. Well, you've steered it and it's, it's just so genuine. I mean, I'm so smiley about it. And, you know, you have a disarmingness about you. Um, it's, it's really fabulous. Share with listeners. So this, the courage book and just, you know, how you went into that. And, and then just talk about, you know, working with the clients that you do, like what holds people back? You know, I mean, this, I, I think this topic, you know, what's it mean to you? I mean, just unpack it a bit for us. Cause I think it's, to me, the courage to be who you are is, you know, is it. And if you can give yourself permission to do that, you know, the, the, you can, you know, the sky is the limit. So we got to keep it real, right? That's what mm -hmm. you, you said I was real. So I got to keep this real. So, so from 2012 to 2017, when I'm growing the next agency, there was three of us that were the founders. We were, we were, and the two of them had been partners on the PR side for a long time. And I was sort of like the young kid that was responsible for creative. And I love that I had them because they were my adults, right? Like they could walk us into any room and we could look the part because I had the adults and they were more than that. But like, that was like the first inning that made me like, okay, I can, I can be me. I can be my creative self and work on the creative project uh, process. And when we were about 
70 folks, I would say. We were, are you a tennis player at all? Oh, if I use a tennis metaphor? I love tennis. Are you kidding me? All right, cool. So uh, I would describe us in no man's land. We were, we were really, we were like too big for San Diego and too small for everywhere else. And I felt like we really couldn't win the golf course conversation. And the way I would describe the golf course conversation is we would get a, a decision maker to come down and see us and see that we were prepared and see that we were good. And then they go back up to LA and playing golf with the CEO and they're the CEO's like, who are they? Where are they based? San Diego, just, just use someone in LA or New York. And I, I kind of realized, look, if we're going to compete from fish taco country, San Diego, we can't be even. Like, even is losing. We need to be clearly better. It can't be close if someone's going to pick us. And started looking at what is our true differentiator. And it wasn't just me. It was our leadership team that came up with it. And the idea was courageous ideas are the only ones that matter. And when you really unpacked it, what we learned about our team is that every single time someone on the team was working on a courageous idea, they, they'd stay at the office later. They were happier. And when the client actually bought those ideas, the return was greater. And every single time we were forced to surrender to the safe idea, which now looking back, we shouldn't have even presented. I'd have a closed door meeting with somebody at 459. The office was empty. And when the client bought those ideas, it didn't work as well. And they forget that. And six months later, they're off to the next company. And so I'm like, there's something here. This is it. Courageous ideas, something with courage. And I remember going to my partners and going, I want to write a book about this. Um, I'd come up with this concept of courage brands. I didn't know what it meant at the time, but very me. I bought couragebrands.com. I trademarked it. And then my first goal was just to come up with the definition of a courage brand. Like, what could that be? And obviously to do that, you have to go back to the root and look at the word courage. And when I looked at the dictionary definition, the definition was the ability to do something that frightens one. And I couldn't pinpoint it at the time other than I knew I didn't like that definition. Like there was nothing about that that felt like, yeah, I want to do that. Let me go do that. Let me do something <laughs> that frightens me, especially at work. Like, please step forward. I'm taking a step back. And so the first part of my journey was, could I come up with a better definition of courage? And it's so funny. I remember reaching out through LinkedIn, super powerful tool, by the way. And I had reached out to Russell Weiner, who at the time was the chief marketing officer at Domino's. And I reached out to Eric Ryan, who is the founder of Method Soap. And I reached out to Loretta Hidalgo, who was an astronaut at Virgin Galactic. And she connected me to Tony Shea at the time, rest in peace, Tony from Zappos. Mm -hmm. And I just sent them all like notes saying, hey, I'm, I am writing a book about courage brands. You guys are candidates. I would love the opportunity to come up and interview you. And it, it took some of them up to two months, but they, were, they wrote back. And it was amazing. Yeah, I think they, when they looked at my 
LinkedIn profile, I think they realized I had done enough as the founder and CCO of this company that at least they would respond back. And I think they resonated with the concept of courage. And one by one, like I said, over this, the course of three years, I got to just sit and listen to really smart people. I, I describe it as the brave, the bullish, and the brainiac. And on the brave side, I talked to like astronauts and Navy SEALs and tornado chasers and bullish were leaders at Apple and Google and some of the names I mentioned before. And then the brainiac were people that studied the way that we're wired. And I was fascinated by why some of us tiptoe right up to the courageous move. And then for some reason we freeze while very few of us actually do it and leap and go for it. So you go on this journey and there was a few aha moments for me. The first being the more I'm getting to know these people, the more I'm like, wow, there's nothing different between them and me, except they're doing it at the level I want to play on. And I'm not, uh, that's kind of frustrating Two, all I'm learning from them gives me the confidence and capability to create a framework to teaching companies how to unlock courage in their business. And some of that's like, you know, this, you, you do it for a living. Like, yeah, it's like unlock the hard conversation that has to happen because companies or people are stuck, right? I always say we need courage for one of one of four reasons. We're stuck, we're stale, we're scared, or we're spinning. And I often start just point blank, like, which one do you think you are? Are you stuck? Are you stale? Are you scared? Are you spinning? And stuck is like short-term. Stale is like, well, you've been stuck for a while. Spinning, you might not know what to do, which is why you're bringing people like us. And then scared is just being human, right? That's just a, being a human being. And, you know, we put up all this armor and we're afraid to just be ourselves and be human and share. And, um, and so the, the other aha I had was I cannot make the impact I want anymore from my own company. And I was never more upset than I was about a year before I left because I knew I was leaving and I knew it was time. And I remember going to my two partners at the time and being like, the good news is my book is done and the bad news is I'm firing myself. It's time for me to go. And, and to be totally honest, our values weren't aligned anyway. And I knew in my heart, like we had done amazing things together and it was time for me to go live the next part of my adventure. And so, you know, I had this two year non-compete and in that time I really worked on my story. I held up the book and when the non-compete was lifted in 2019, I launched courageous and I launched my book, which is called return on courage. Uh, the book, I don't say this in the book, Basically, the front half of the book is like the why now, why now of all things, why now of all things, do I think courage is the missing ingredient. And then the back half's the how, how do you do it? How do you do it? So it's not like an impulsive move or a careless move, or it's clear after these last few years, which has been a brutally tough year for so, so many people, there's a massive dif difference between making a resilient move and a courageous move. I think, I think the world has happened to a lot of us and we've had to respond to that world. And to me, that's an act of resilience. But when you're hitting the gas and you're being proactive, to me, that is an act of, of courage. 
So when change drives you, resilience. You drive change, courage. And so now I get to go around the country and keynote and talk about all the things I learned on that journey. And now I've got my executive coaching program. There's three components to, to my business. There's a leadership side where there's workshops and coaching keynotes. There's a consulting side and that consulting side, we call ourselves a little special forces that helps companies figure out their special. And there's an entertainment side and that's like the, my podcast, the greatest podcast. It's the books like return on courage. There's a few other things we're working on right now. Um, and that's kind of the long game for me is a lot of content. I think we see in the world has been put out there to help you escape your life. You turn on Netflix that's escapism and i would like to be the guy that creates content that helps you confront your life and be do it in a positive way right but like human performance human potential i don't know if i could pull this off molly but like that's kind of where i'm going and if it takes me 20 years to do it i'm you know i think we've if we've learned anything from the from this show it's that i'll put in the work and we'll see where it takes me ah, love it there's no doubt you're you'll get there wherever there is and there's a huge need and thank you for clarifying resilient being responding and courageous as in driving change um you're one of those folks who just you're, you're being the change you want to see in the world my friend and that is so awesome <laughs> i'm really i'm awe you're so you know the sense of at peace, but not, you know, not settling, but just kind of embracing the mistakes and not quite right. And it's a little gnarly. Um, take us to the home life and your family and your kids as you're building businesses and is balancing that a struggle at all? You, is it, you're pretty clear on the demarcation of how you're able to serve both in the way that you'd like. That's a better question for my wife. You know, I mean, because from my lens, I'd be curious to hear what she would say. I would say I am very uh, aware how lucky I am. I mean, I've worked hard for it, right, to get to do this, right? And I am trying to design a life that brings me joy that I could also monetize, right? And bringing me joy is like, I genuinely like helping people. I like helping them tell their story. I like helping them get clear. I, you know, you pull the Ryan Berman string, you'll hear me say, I want to help people fight fear, create clarity, and build belief. And I've done that for myself. And so when I look at my, I have a nine-year-old son named Micah and a six-year-old daughter named Mackenzie. And I know that they're watching how I choose to live my life. And, um, you know, like go back to the book. Like I, I wrote the book as this devious attempt to position a company. And, you know, this is a classic storytelling, by the way, realized along the journey that it was about something entirely different. I wrote the book first because I needed the book. And then second, I wrote the book because I hope my kids live a courageous life. I want them to go have an adventure. And, you know, if I tell them that, they're not going to do it, but at least the book is there when they're ready to read it. And um, 
and they can learn how to how to do it their way. And and so I think you know it's funny. My son about a month ago was putting him to bed, and he said he wanted to be he wanted to work at Courageous. And I was like, why? Why? Why do you want to work at Courageous? And he said, because you help people. And it's like you know, like come on, I'm gonna start crying right here on the spot. You know, it's like. <laughs> It's just, what else could you ask for? And the fact that he's cerebral enough to pick it up and get it and see it. And I, I'm not like, I'm not doing it for like, I love what I do, but it's so cool to see him pick that up. And, um, and so I'm like, yeah, okay. Wait, let's jump. And then I'm like, you know, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. Shocked that I went there. A lot of hard work to do this, but it, it really is gratifying. It's, it brings me joy to help, you know, people get, you know, overcome their fears or whatever that might be and, uh, and, and navigate change. So as you're working w- with the corporates, it's such a no brainer. We want to be courageous. There's all these benefits of being courageous. Got it. Check. What do you find are the things that really hold organizations back? If there's one thing you would advise for folks to consider in their roles that might help you know, move the collective that much closer to it. What would those be? So I'll try to do this succinctly because I know we're, you know, I'm a, I'm a talker, Molly, you know, so, (laughs) so I think let's just use this moment in time. You know, we have this moment in time. Some would call it the great resignation. Others would call it the great reshuffle. And if you're one of those people that are afraid because you're losing good people to this and this is not going to, this part's not going to be a surprise. I believe the only way to, to really like stop the great resignation for your company is with a great story. And when you look at what a great story is, it starts with the first piece, which is clarity. Like, are you clear? Have you been clear? Are you as clear as you could be? And once you've got clarity, you can move into the conviction piece. Um, one of the things I learned early from my ad days is that, you know, if you try to be everything to everyone, you, you're going to stand for nothing for everybody, right? You're not going to stand out at all. And so pick a lane. Stop trying to be all things to all people and find your people. I always say you even make uh, believers or fake believers. And in your company, People don't wear a t-shirt that says fake believer. They just walk around and nod and smile and roll their eyes when you're not watching. And so, you know, very typical to me as a writer, there's times where I'll make up terms. I always say, I'm not a fan of the word leadership. I like the word believership. And the sole goal of leadership is believership, to make believers in all directions. So you need to have a story that could truly make believers. Like it's, there's gotta be conviction. And the way to get conviction is to have a true cause. So all these things play together. And in some ways, I am a change mechanic that helps you get your story straight first. And I make sure that that story can create conviction. And then I'm going to help you be consistent on telling that story so the right people stay and the wrong people leave. The wrong people leaving, by the way, are not that they're bad people. They should go do something that they believe in. And sometimes it takes a lot of courage just to say, that statement because we hold on to things that we shouldn't hold on to. What I've learned is when a company is clear, decision-making gets so much easier. In the book, I talk about 
a handful of commodity businesses on purpose. I'm not going to use just the Silicon Valley, you know, massive brands because I want to show that if a commodity could do it, you know, if soap can figure out a way to have a story of conviction, if if cheese sauce and dough pizza can have a story of conviction and they could be consistent with that story and see a true return on courage, that it's there for anyone. It's there for the taking, for any willing leader. It's just sometimes the, we, the, the leader has to get out of their own way and admit that they can't do it by themselves and be vulnerable. Vulnerability must for trust. It's where it all starts. And um, you have been a superstar. We could go on for another hour easily. I'm going to ask you just one short question. You've heard yourself cover a lot of ground. Do you have a top takeaway that, that you're, you're kind of reflecting on as you've just spewed all this out? I'm really curious what, what that would be. I think the, you know, I'm like replaying the entire thing in my head right now, right? So the one thing that makes me smile is that even when I didn't have all the answers, but had belief in myself to go for it. Um, I have a, okay, I've got a, I, I do have a gripe. I'm a positive guy, but here's my gripe. I despise one term. The one term is fake it till you make it. What a terrible idea. Um, I have a t-shirt that I've made that says mistake it till you make it. And I think that's kind of how I've lived my life. It's like if you never take a shot, you know, you're, you're, you'll never get anywhere. And so I've made so many mistakes. I've bumbled through to try to figure out how to be an entrepreneur as a guy that took like one mandated business class in college. And I think that's what it's all about. It's like, no, no fake it until you make it, mistake it until you make it. And give yourself permission to to make mistakes on the experiment. And usually good things will come of it. Um, now, maybe I was clear in other places, right? I knew I wanted to go for it. I knew I was competitive. I knew I'd put in the hard work. I had enough awareness. I had enough talent that I felt I could help companies tell great stories. And even today, you know, we're today courageous. We're working with Church and Dwight. We're working with... Kraft Heinz, Johnson Johnson, Kellogg's, not small brands. And there's a lot of bureaucracy in there. And it usually takes somebody to be real and admit that, hey, I can't do this alone or um, help us get there. And we're not going to have all the answers on day one, but let's go through the journey and see where this goes. And you got to go on the journey. Maybe that's the takeaway. Gotta, you have to allow yourself permission to go on the journey no matter what happens. Amazing. You rock, my friend. Pure awesomeness. I appreciate I appreciate how you're helping people be real and all the things that come with that, including courage. Um, thank you, Ryan Berman, for being part of the solution. You take good care. Oh, thanks, Molly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I, I want to say the same thing to you. Like I feel like, no, you're doing that. You're doing this. We're going to come back for a part two, my friend. You take good care. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Um, okay, folks, my thought for the week, courtesy of Ryan, of course, don't just look at the world differently, do the world differently. And that is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Ryan's voice. 
Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.